All right, good morning. Glad to be with you guys, yeah. We're gonna, we're gonna see if I can do this, but I'm pretty sure I'm about 90% back. So um, it is great to be with you because this is, a, this is a weekend that I've traditionally kind of hoarded. Um, the last weekend of the Compassion, International, uh, Compassion Immersion time has been a time where about uh, 12, 13 years ago, I felt like I was pretty ignorant to mission movement at all. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't come to church till I was 23. I wasn't a part of, of really that whole history. And to be honest with you, my exposure to missions was weird, right? They were the folks who came um, and were real boring. <laughs> I'm just being honest. And so I started, I said, that can't be, a, you know, it can't be a good reflection of what's going on. So I just decided that you might be in the same boat as me. And so I began this process of trying to, you know, I love history. And so it was a, a process of trying to expose myself to historically what kind of movement are we a part of? Because it is a gigantic value for us to send resources and people outside of this church. So I began to look and you can't find this you know, in your textbooks at, and, and schools, it's tough to find in libraries, but there was a missionary movement that's historically one of the most significant factors um, in, our, in our whole global history. And it's tied into kind of with colonialism, and so it gets kind of a bad rap, but there's all kinds of great things that were going on. So we started this journey, and I started exposing you to guys like William Carey started the modern missionary movement in 1793 where he went to India. And this was a phase, basically there's three phases to the missionary movement that we're a part of. This was a phase where global travel was starting to get more um, available for folks and they started to reach the coastlines of every continent on the globe. Every continent. But you know there's way more to a country and way more to continents than the coastline. And so in 1865, if you think about just right about the time our Civil War ended, China Inland Mission with Hudson Taylor began. And now the effort began to reach countries. And this was the, the push and actually was accomplished in 1974. Every country in the world was reached, had a, had a gospel influence inside of it. But if you began to study countries, you knew that there was way more to a country than just uh, you know, this monolithic kind of thought. And so in, in um, 1934, a guy named Cameron Townsend came along, and him, his emphasis were people groups and language groups. And he began to say to folks, every people group on the planet deserves to have the scriptures in their vernacular, in their home language. And so that became the emphasis, and we are still in that emphasis now. There are still people groups on our planet that do not have the scriptures in their language. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the missionaries that we, we support in Indonesia just about a year ago finished the translation of the New Testament for a people group that had never read the Bible especially the New Testament in their own language. So this is kind of where we are now. And so I began to, ex to tell y'all about this. And if you've been around at all, you're, you recognize these three dudes. Then we started to say, let's meet some old missionaries, not the boring ones, 
And there actually aren't very many boring ones. There's just missionaries that aren't very good at presenting what they're doing. They're all doing this phenomenal work. And I began to introduce you to guys like John Patton. I always got to say, he's also the weirdest looking dude, but he's the guy who said, I'm going to go to these um, islands where there's cannibals. And his best friends told him, John, you can't go to those islands. They'll eat you. And he said, well, worms are going to eat you. What difference does it make? I mean, it's just perfect. John was great. And then David Brainerd, Andrew Fuller, Adoniram Judson, John Newton, George Mueller, William Wilberforce, one of my heroes, him and Eric Little, um, another one of my heroes, Amy Carmichael, who stood against the, the resistance for women to be put in leadership. She was just a great missionary in India. Arthur Guinness. Uh, yes, the founder of the beer company. Um, that's what is one of my favorite years. Um, and if you, you want to read one fantastic book, In Search of God and Guinness, will just blow your mind away about what difference a man can do in his place of work. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was last year, and this year I want to introduce you to Leslie Newbegin. Now, this is a new thing for me. This is part of, part of my new role. I didn't choose Leslie Newbegin. I'd barely heard of him. Who chose him? Jay. <laughs> and he's over at South Hills talking about him. And he is fascinating. I can't wait. Now, don't be impressed. Um, all I did was buy a couple of books. Unfinished Agenda is an autobiography about Leslie Newbegin. And then there are other books. Uh, the Church and Its Vocation was the other book that I read. But he wrote some books called Foolishness to the Greeks, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. If you Google Leslie Newbegin, you will get 194,000 hits. So there's tons of stuff. In fact, you can even hear him preach. Um, he's, he's current enough that you can hear him preach. There's things online. So Leslie Newbegin, and I want to take some time to do that. So when we jump in, let's go. I'm going to pray. God, how good it is to be together. Wow, just how thankful I am for the opportunity to be together. And we stand on the, the shoulders of such great, great people who, for the reality of the gospel in their lives, set aside their own desires and agendas and hopes and dreams, and followed your plan to go to all the world. It was not suggested to us to do that. It was commanded where you said for us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we may, may I do justice to Leslie Newbegin. May I honor his life. But more importantly, God, could his life bring honor to you? And could you use it to, to spur us on to a deeper commitment to how much we love you and how we interact with our world? Thank you for this time. Use it for our good, please, and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's the plan. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Leslie, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about kind of his main emphasis, and then I want to draw from him some things we can learn from him. Fair enough? Okay. 
Duke University theologian Jeffrey Wainwright said that when, the, when we get away from the 20th century enough to write an accurate history of it, that Leslie Newbegin will be among the top 10 or 12 theological thinkers and influences of the century. Now, you think about the 20th century and the great influences for Christ. How giant of a statement that is. And I would bet that it's just a handful of us that had ever heard of him. He was born in England in 1909 to Annie and Edward Newbigin. His father was a shipping merchant, fairly wealthy, and there was some pressure on Leslie for him to uh, take over the, the family business once he was educated. He was sent to the finest education that he could get at Cambridge University and was educated there at Queen's College. But around um, 19 or 20 years old, had an experience where he saw a vision or a dream. He said he couldn't really decide what it was, but there was something about the cross and the, 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 the great price that has been paid for his life. And he went home and told his dad, I can't, I can't, I can't follow in your steps. I'm going to go and serve Christ. And so he came back to Cambridge, went to Westminster College uh, for seminary education, and in three years graduated. A month later, he married Helen Henderson, and together they set off to India, and they served there for 40 years. The year was 1936 when they went to India. It was pre-independence, um, and he began to serve there. India gained its independence, I think, 1947. In the early 1900s, missionary church planning work looked um, especially coming out of um, Western Europe, it looked a little bit like converting people to English. Um, unfortunately, to follow Jesus meant that you needed to learn English, change your dress, and put an organ in your church and sing the old hymns. Um, and there was no honoring or little honoring of the culture and the history that the people brought to their experience. And Leslie Newbigin changed all of that. Very quickly, he began to serve and develop and brings people. Immediately, he began to have fruit in his ministry, and he would come alongside these people, disciple them, develop them, lead them, and then turn the churches over to them, to the nationals. He wouldn't say, you got to, you know, I'm professional. You got to have me. No, in fact, he, no, just, you don't have to change how you dress and begin, allow the Indian influence to go ahead and start to change how we do church here and let me um, turn the leadership over to you in a fascinating way. And he did this so effectively that when India gained its independence, they not only kept Leslie around, they elected him as bishop. They, lots of guys, when uh, India gained its independence, they flew, they, they, they left out, but not him. He stayed. Now, here's the crazy thing. As fruitful as that was, and as amazing as that whole ministry was, he retires after 40 years and comes back to England in 1974. Now, and the truth is, is that this is where his life, the great legacy of his life is not in India. It's after he came back to England. His missionary eyes, he's seeing things through, being out of the country for 40 years, his missionary eyes brought fresh sight to the Western culture, and he called for what he called a, a missionary encounter. We'll talk about that in just a second. 
And he said, we, we've got to have a missionary encounter. He said, that, he said that Western culture, while he was away, had become more non-Christian than India. And it was the most resistant to, and most challenging to the culture of Christianity of anywhere in history. And he began to write of this. And he, he, this voice, this fresh voice who had been completely removed now stepped back into the academic world and began to, to, to talk about some of the things he saw. With the eyes of an outsider, Newbegin saw the church in his country with the, that had been co-opted by what he called the myth of progress. Listen to this because this is deep-seated into our culture. It's the idea that the world is moving forward on an evolutionary tract toward greater and greater heights of human knowledge and moral behavior. Okay, Clifford version of that? The longer we go, the better we are. You know how much evidence there is for that? Zip. Y'all do this with me together. Zip. Okay. And so Newbegin saw the damage that this myth of progress did to the church's witness as it wasn't just the culture that it was adopting it, but it was the church itself. After all, at the heart of the gospel is the claim that something has happened. Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah, got up from the grave. And in light of the resurrection, the, the question he said cannot be, what is my truth? See if this sounds familiar. What is my truth? And what is your truth? But the question must be, what is the truth for the world? And so he began to challenge this, and the great legacy of his life is his word to the church when he came back. Now, I'm going to tell you one little story about him, and this is all you need to know. When I read this story, I absolutely fell in love with Leslie Newbegin. Here it is. Two weeks, about two weeks before he died. Is, is the guy who did the memorial service for him said that he was found turning the world upside down like he did for everybody else, doing it, turning the world upside down for a group of neighborhood children in his front yard as he taught them to stand on their head. Okay, shut up. That, that is the kind of Christian I want to be. That's, that will get in the grass and play with the kids of the neighborhood and then march my tail over to Cambridge and say, you folks have got it wrong. And do both with the kind of love that demands people give him their attention. Oh, guys, if we could walk with that kind of balance, that smells like Jesus to me. The question Newbegin said, which has to be put to every local congregation, that's us, is the question whether it is a credible sign of God's reign in justice and mercy over the whole of life. Whether it is an open fellowship whose concerns are as wide as the concerns of humanity. Whether it cares for its neighbors in a way which reflects and springs out of God's care for them. Whether it's common life is recognizable as a foretaste of the blessing 
which God intends for the whole of the human family. What is this missionary encounter? What is this thing that he is calling each Christ follower to? Because the word doesn't really help us. The verse he would use is 1 Peter 2, verse 12, where he says, live such good lives among the pagans. And that word throws us because it sounds like, it sounds so derogatory that we don't even like whatever comes next. Read nations. It, it literally means those outside of God's family, the Gentiles, the nations. Live such good lives among those folks that though they accuse you of doing wrong, literally blast you on the internet as being evildoers and hypocrites, even though they accuse you of that, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This would be his, his call to each of us today. And this is a common theme. It's in Philippians, it's in Titus, it's in 1 Peter right after this in chapter 3. Here's a quote from Leslie Newbigin. How can this strange story of God made flesh, of a crucified Savior, of resurrection and new creation become credible to those whose entire mental training has conditioned them to believe that the real world is the world which can satisfactorily be explained and managed without a hypothesis of God? How can that whole Christian thing become credible? Here's what he says. This is it. I know of only one clue to the answering of that question, only one hermeneutic to the gospel, and it is a congregation which believes it and then lives according to their beliefs. What, he, what he's saying is, is that it's nonsensical unless it actually changes lives. And he would say, it's both suffering and growth. Did you notice in 1 Peter 2 that there's suffering in that? People attacking you. See, we, we think that if we take this good step of faith that they're just going to embrace us. Listen, that's unrealistic. They're going to first slander you and then watch you. And if they shoot the finger at you and you shoot the finger back, you are dismissed. You are dismissed. And, by, and that's like, you think, oh, I'd never shoot the finger back. If they gossip about you and you go and gossip about them, you are dismissed. Wow. I hadn't preached in a while. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm, I'm like all in your face and you're looking at me like, what the heck? I don't know. I'm not sure I'm glad he's back. <laughs> a church that exists, he would say, he did say, a church that exists only for itself and its own enlargement is a witness against the gospel. You see, we... We have a value here that we try to give as much as we can away. 
And there have been many of you ask us about that when there are so many needs right here. Padded chairs is one of the issues that comes up all the time. <laughs> I mean, what? anyway, the gospel demands it. We're the better for it. Let me talk a little bit more about a mission, missionary encounter and talk about kind of what it's not and what it is, because this is, this is confusing, and there's lots of expressions of how this is trying to be lived out. Missionary encounter, here's what it is not. It is not withdrawal. It is not shrinking back. It is not trying to build such a safe haven somewhere so that I'm outside of the influence of the culture I'm a part of. Amish are not having a missionary encounter. Now, they're not trying to. That's not their strategy. But many churches who think they are, are not either. There's this separatist mentality where we, we've got to get away and protect ourselves. That's, it's not that, but it's also, and, I, and this is going to make some of you uncomfortable, it's not political takeover either. It's not emissioning ourselves so much in the culture that we look just like it so we can take the titles away from those evil people. We can't become too assimilated in the culture, but we can't separate ourselves from it. We must be different. And Newbegin was critical of both sides of the church. He told mainline denominational folks that are usually a little more liberal in their interpretation of the scripture that they basically become, after, while he was away, they had become exclusively horizontal in all of their strategies. Now, what does that mean? It means that everything that they did was this way. They championed mercy and justice. They did that, but they rarely, almost never said that there's a supernatural component to our message and, it, they, and um, you would not, they would not exalt the authority of the scripture among them. But he also said to the conservative evangelical, which is what our church would identify as, that they had become almost exclusively vertical. That it's all about me and mine and Jesus. He said it this way. It's all about me and Jesus getting to spend eternity in a pleasure factory. Now, what is it then? What it is, is what we gain from 1 Peter chapter 2. We confront our culture with the truth of the gospel and we allow the Holy Spirit to convert those that he does. And we're just unwilling, most of us are unwilling to confront our culture. So, six things. How am I doing on time? Uh, oh man, I'm doing good. Holy smoke. <laughs> Six things learned from Newbegin. This is just, now this is just, there's more than this than you could learn. And if you get into this, or if you're here and you're like a Newbegin expert, come, come see me afterwards and say you should make it seven things. Here's my six things. Number one, 
We are not a people that need to live in fear of our culture. With each of these things, I'm going to maybe say a few things, but I want to quote uh, Leslie Newbegin. He said this, The church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. In fact, Jesus himself, when he's praying for us in John 16 and 17, he says, I'm not praying that they come out of the world, but that while they go into the world, that you'll protect them. The church here, this, this gathering, this is kind of the huddle in a football game. By the way, sorry about the Niners. Tough loss. <laughs> no, really. Really. I mean, the Cowboys watched on TV that week, so what am I going to say? Okay, I meant that, but um, the, this is the huddle. The game is played when we leave. The challenge is to not be a people group who live in fear. Number two, the scriptures must stand as our guide to how to live in the culture we are in. He said this, the choice for the church in every age will always be Will our identity be shaped by Scripture or by our culture? By the biblical story or by the cultural story? Now, we tend to read that and on the surface pat ourselves on the back and move forward. Let me just take a moment. According to the witness of Scripture, let me describe to you the first century church and then you, you see how you think we're doing. There's five distinct things more than this, but let me just go with these five that really marked the first century church. Number one, they were multi-ethnic. They were the first gathering of its kind, actually, in history, where it encouraged people of different groups to come and join, multi-ethnic. They were radically generous to the poor, radically generous, selling property and pulling together their resources so that they could serve the poor. They were non-retaliatory towards the aggressive acts against them. What, and, this, and this showed up like Christians have a little community, a little town that they're a part of. If they were attacked by marauders and bandits, they did not gather their people together and then go attack them back. They, they offered forgiveness. They, they practiced forgiveness. They were positively for infants. They set up the first orphanages. They, they were rescuing kids off of trash heaps. They were absolutely protected the smallest and the youngest of their day. And then they were sexually stricter than their culture. A higher vision for women and for sex. And they lived that. Now, there's the five things. Now, let me, let me show you something pretty interesting. The first two are, in our day, pretty Democratic Party-ish. Multi-ethnic, radically generous. I'm just talking about generally in our nation. If you looked at, the, if you looked at what the Democratic Party tends to champion, they tend to champion those two things. The last two... Protection of infants and the new, an unborn and strict sexual moral behavior, those are part of the Republican side. 
I know some of y'all are steaming at me right now. I'm using words, that I, but just, just be, I'm just being honest here. Nobody's doing the middle one. Nobody is radically non-retaliatory. Everybody, you hit me, I'm hitting you back. Quick. Two look like a Democrat, two look like a Republican, and only one of them is no one's doing. And most Christians, as I talk with them, they want to drop the two they don't do and then rationalize why they don't do the third. And then they brag about how good they are at the other two. The scriptures would call us to be all five. No party ticket can fully represent the radical cultural invasion that Jesus is calling us to. I hope you see that. Number three, the gospel leads to a beautiful life. Over and over again, Newbegin said that this message must be shared because it just leads to such a beautiful life. The faith it takes to doubt it, the problems you have without it, and the beauty I find within it demand that I say that Christianity is the most beautiful option. That there's a clarity around this gospel of one gospel, which is the availability of the kingdom of God to all through Christ because of his grace and his resurrection. One purpose to model the reality of that kingdom. One command, pursue the kingdom above all else. And one plan, which is to take the message of the kingdom out to those who don't know about it yet in love and kindness. buddy of mine shared a quote with me this past week that just gripped me. It's a Dallas Willard quote. I want you to bring, go ahead and bring it up, and I want you to read it along. I'm going to try to do it slowly. Because I think right here, this beautiful life, when I said the gospel brings a beautiful life, you immediately, some of you immediately thought to future. Oh, that's, there's, it's going to be beautiful someday. This is what Dallas Willard said. Our destiny is to be a part of a tremendously creative team effort under unimaginably splendid leadership on an inconceivably vast scale with ever-increasing cycles of productivity and fulfillment. And that is what eye has not seen and ear has not heard in the prophetic vision of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We think, to borrow Newbegin's phrase, we think heaven's a pleasure factory. And that there's really no advantage now. The gospel is now and not yet. John, um, Jesus said it this way, it's recorded in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it what? Read it with me. Have it to the full. Number four, Newbegin taught that action is greater than belief. Here's his quote. It is less important to ask a Christian what he or she believes about the Bible than it is to inquire what he or she does with it. 
James chapter 2, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith and don't show it by your actions? And this quote by Peter Marshall, I love this. Write it down. Small deeds done are better than great deeds planned. Action is greater than belief. I think that's a huge lesson for us. Number five, we are called to be a people of justice. Here's his quote. The living God is a God of justice and mercy, and he will be satisfied with nothing less than a people in whom his justice and mercy are alive. We spent two weekends highlighting some of the things that we've done. We're accused in the, we have been accused in the past and probably this year too, that we just take a couple of weeks and brag about how good we are. That is not what we are doing. We are reporting to you how your dollars were used. If we're bragging about anything, we're bragging about the opportunity we have to team with some of the finest people I know of on the planet. The mom premieres are sitting right here. They're some of the best missionaries I've ever met, ever. If you went to Haiti, you would say, Steve's right. And they're just one. Nadim is here today. He, I don't even know if he's even with us, but he'll be out in the lobby or you'll hear from him. He's one of the finest missionaries in the, one of the toughest situations you'll ever meet. I will promise you your dollars are being well spent. And we want to tell you that. But it's more than that. We need to know what's going on all around the world and what God is up to and how we can be more of a resourcing church to bring about justice and mercy to under-resourced people. The gospel moves that in us. And you've responded, and we want to tell you what's happened. And that leads me to number six. Mission is a core identity. It's not somebody's job description. It's not, it's not the mom premier's job to get it done and then come see us a couple at once every other year or so and say, how you doing on mission? How you doing it? It's our job. Let me read this quote here by Newbigin. He says, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. And that is our opportunity to do what we call our loud offering. Now, there's some confusion about loud offering. If you ever give a dime here, part of that dime goes into loud offering. We set aside a minimum of 10% of our general budget to finance the loud offering. But that's not enough. We want to do more. We know we can do more. And so we ask you to be part of a second offering that 100% of it all goes outside of our laws, our walls. We call that our loud offering. It's living out unselfish devotion. Now, I know that there are some of you who have real good reasons not to be part of the giving of this church. You still don't know us. You're brand new. 
you don't trust us, Jay and Steve are in transition, you're not sure how it's going to go, whatever you've got. But this offering has nothing to do with all of that. It goes all outside of our walls. And I believe that part of the role that we have, that part of the blessing of where we live is that we can be a resourcing church to places around the world. Not that we don't also get involved. We, we push hard to be involved in our county, which is where most of us are going to be involved. Very few of us are gonna leave this country. But we wanna be involved in it personally and be, of course, do those kinds of things. But we also wanna be able to finance some of the things that are going on around the world. I thank God that I had someone love me enough to have a missionary encounter with me. <laughs> you, you can't imagine how obnoxiously rude I was as a 16-year-old. Well, maybe you can. <laughs> maybe it's kind of like now, but with red hair, you know, that was long. Um, I went to weekend retreats with Young Life that, and started food fights we had a competition where we were doing some things against a rival school, and I helped set up an ambush and started a fight and was proud of it. And when Scott Coy came to me over and over again with the gospel, I was rude to him. I was arrogant to him. I was so certain that he was an idiot and that I was enlightened. And yet he just continued to love me and love me and love me until finally the grace of God broke through my arrogance. You and I are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Sounds just like 1 Peter, doesn't it? That's Jesus out of Matthew chapter 5. Charles Spurgeon said, the gospel is like a caged lion doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be released. Will you release it in your life? When I had that missionary encounter with Scott Coy as a 17, almost 18 years old, I came face to face with this fact and it's radically changed. Every breath I've taken since, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, then he reigns. If he's great enough to, to defeat death, no one else has ever done that. No one else ever will. He defeated death on his word, his action, his merit. If he rose, then he reigns. And my life needs to be submitted to that. And then in the midst of it, in the midst of COVID and troubles and hardships and all of the things that we've had, 
If he rose, he reigns. If he reigns, he promised he'd return. He promised he would. So that means all of us here, everybody listening to the sound of my voice, we're either going to be called home to a place that's perfect, where we'll serve on a great team with great, I can't remember all the things, but um, we'll serve on this great place. Or we'll get to see him come home and get us. Jesus rose. If he rose, he reigns. And if he reigns, he'll return. Let's take that reality and that gospel. Be one step bolder than you were before. If we can be, we certainly honored Leslie Newbegin, but more importantly, we'll honor the Savior we claim. Let's pray. Thanks for your grace in our lives. Thank you for such a clear expression of your love for us and that you bore the penalty that would keep us apart of sin and death on Calvary's cross. Jesus, thank you for defeating death, rising from the dead. And because of that reality, Father, in this place, in this place, you are Lord. Help that to be a reality in our hearts as we leave, as we cling to the promise of your return. What a rich expression of grace to us. Thank you for Leslie Newbegin. But more than that, thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.